Good morning. Did you enjoy our music worship this morning? It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Well, we are continuing our series in 1 Peter, and I want to let you know that this title, Living for Heaven in a World Gone to Hell, was picked actually weeks ago, and this title was given to me by Eric. And so this isn't a response to what's going on in the world this week, because only God can do that, right? I mean, figure out that things are going to go haywire weeks ago and that you guys were needing to hear that this morning. Living for hell and a, or living for, let me back that up again. That's, <laughs> we're not living for hell, okay? Living for heaven in a world gone to hell, okay? Wow. Okay. Can anyone deny the fact that this world's a mess right now? I think we can safely say that this world has lost its ever-loving mind, and we've lost our moral compass. Our spiritual equilibrium is just gone. We're on the verge, unless you've been, you know, out of the country or living in a hole, we are right now on the verge of another world war with the situation in, in Ukraine that's going on. And I don't know if you saw the news this morning, but uh, Putin from Russia has ordered his interballistic uh, continental missiles to be, you know, transported out of uh, Moscow. And so he's kind of put the world on alert. Supply chains are disrupting everything from groceries to, to car parts. Cancel culture. If you say something that somebody doesn't like or it offends them, guess what? You're canceled. You're done. We have identity issues. We have boys wanting to be girls, girls wanting to be boys. Sometimes boys are racing against girls. We have some that can't decide what they are, and so they want to be a non-binary, and so they want you to refer to them as a they, them, or us, or something, and they're offended if you don't go along with this. And this week in our staff meeting, we were talking about that the latest thing that's happening in our, in our classrooms is that kids go to school and they want to be identified as a dog or a cat. For real. This, this is real stuff. And they're offended. The parents take offense to the parents or to the teachers that do not go along with this charade. Dogs and cats. We have political shamming, you know. You post something that somebody doesn't like, and you're going to get attacked. Uh, you post something patriotic, and, and look out, you know. Uh, they're going to, you're, you're just going to be attacked. We have political infighting. Republicans versus Democrats, and vice versa, and every political opinion that you can think of, we're at war with each other. We have COVID battles, masked versus unmasked, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And everyone kind of thought, didn't we, that the problems of this world would go away if we simply did one thing, change the name of the Washington Redskins to the Washington Commanders. <laughs> so we changed the name of the football team, and guess what? The problems didn't go away, so apparently the name wasn't the problem world's still a mess. I think we're truly living in the time of Isaiah chapter 5, where it says, good will be called evil, and evil will be called good. 
Things have gotten reversed and crisscrossed. That's where we are today, friends. I had this discussion with somebody just this last week about the word bad. Okay, when I grew up, if you did something bad, it was wrong. Okay? You might have got a spanking for doing something bad. But bad meant that it was no good. It was rotten. It was, you know, wrong. Then somewhere along the line, the word bad came to mean good. Oh, that's so bad, which translated meant, oh, that's really cool. That's really good. Now that word bad has rolled back around, and bad means bad again, I think, right? That is wrong, but, but who really knows? We're living in a time period that you can think, act, live, behave any way you want. And this crazy, mixed-up world will tell you it's okay. And the challenge for us as Christians is how do we live focused on heaven and eternity in this crazy, mixed-up world? that doesn't even know what identity they are. First Peter, we see this theme just keep reoccurring all throughout the, the, the book of First Peter, and it's about suffering. We see it in First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and then again in chapter 2, 19 through 21, and then in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, which Eric covered last week. And all through those verses, he talks about suffering for Christ. Then again, in chapter 4, which we're going to tackle this morning, the first 11 verses of it, we see this theme, suffering again. You see, Peter was writing to a, a group of believers, brothers and sisters, who were really suffering for their faith. And he was trying to encourage them to hang on. This isn't going to last forever. There's some dark days ahead, but I want you to hang on. Live for heaven. The world may have gone to hell around you, but keep your eyes focused on Jesus and live for heaven. So that's what we're going to try to tackle this morning. And I kind of broke this passage down into four things that I think we need to do if we want to remain focused on living for heaven in this crazy mixed up world. Number one is we need to be willing to suffer. Living for heaven means that we need to be willing to suffer. Read with me in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Friends, I want to tell you something. We're standing on the edge of history right now. The two-minute warning has gone off. And we're told to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ had when it came to suffering. Now, it's really hard for us Christians in America to understand suffering for our faith, isn't it? Has anyone here in this room ever had somebody put a, a gun to your head and said, you know, do you want to deny Christ or die? Anybody? Has anybody ever been beaten or whipped mercilessly, you know, just without uh, care for being a Christian? Have any of you had your homes burnt down or your job threatened because you're a Christian? See, it's hard for us to imagine what it's really like to suffer for our faith, to put our faith 
or maybe our life on the line because of a, a Christian. Now, we all face some common difficulties in life, and sometimes they can challenge our faith. But what do we do when things aren't going well at home or in the job? What do we do when we feel like we're the only ones standing up for Jesus? When we keep taking the brunt of everything that happens and we feel like we're standing all alone. You know, standing firm for the Lord isn't hard when you've got a whole bunch of people standing with you or when things are going well. But see, Scripture doesn't give us the option on whether or not we suffer. Scripture says, if you follow Christ, you will suffer. Do you understand that? You're going to go through suffering. Last week in our small group, we talked about this, and I asked them that same question. Have any of you ever suffered for your faith? And I have to, to be honest, I've never what I really call suffered for my faith. Have I been ridiculed, made fun of? Maybe laughed at, you know, oh, you're good at two-shoes. You don't do those things, do you? You know, kind of mocked a little bit for my faith, but I've never suffered for my faith. But yet, Peter says we have to arm ourselves with the same suffering that Jesus did. And we're going to spend a lot more time on this next week because the last part of this passage of chapter 4, he goes into even greater detail about suffering. But we're told that we have to have the same attitude as Christ. Okay, so Christ suffered. He was beaten. He was mocked. Finally hung him on a cross. But Scripture tells us that he was beaten beyond what was recognizable as a, as a human being. That's true suffering. I've not experienced that. So is there something wrong with me? Till we kind of figured out that part of suffering was not only the physical suffering that Jesus went through, but the suffering of denying himself the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of the sinful self. Jesus denied himself all those pleasures, which was a part of that suffering as well. Do you understand that? So it's not just the physical suffering that he went through, but it was also the suffering of denying ourself something that we feel would make us happy. We're called to arm ourselves with that same resolve, to go the distance. And this verse doesn't tell us to quit, but it says stay in the fight. And I think many times we feel defeated in our battle against sin because we're not sacrificing anything in battle. We only want the victory if it comes real easy to us, don't we? A lot of people that are involved in competitive sports, they like the, the competition, but they don't like the practice. They want things to come easy. In other words, we've got to have some skin in the game here. Jesus, Peter, Paul, James, they all agree Listen to this, that in the last days, great persecution is coming. And so the church better be ready. We need to be prepared. I want to tell you something, friends. Right now, while we're in church here in Enid, Oklahoma, somewhere around the world, during this time period that we're in church, 
we're going to have a brother and sister lose their life for the cause of Christ. Right now, during, during this hour, there's not a day goes by that people are not losing their life. That's true suffering, what I, I consider true suffering for the cause of Christ. So somebody will lose their life this morning while we're cozy here in Enid, Oklahoma, for the cause of Christ. Jesus' attitude was that he was not only willing to die for us, but he was willing to suffer for us. He not only died himself, or, or denied himself and suffered denying himself the pleasures of this world, but he, he suffered denying himself what would bring him happiness all for us. He chose to make his Father in heaven happy, and he chose to suffer what he suffered, eventually dying on a cross for us. Second thing that I see from this passage of Scripture, if we want to live for, for heaven, it means that we have to be expected to separate. Living for heaven means we're expected to separate. Continue reading in verse uh, 2 with me. As a result, they do not live like the rest of the earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they will heap abuse on you. But they will, ha but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. People living for heaven have to live their lives separated from the sinful past. You know, Peter gives us a, a partial list of things here, you know, that he said that we used to live like uh, debauchery and lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable living, idolatry. That's just a partial list. But he says the one who suffered in the flesh is going to cease from sin. Cease means that you're not going to do that anymore. So does that mean that we'll never sin again? If we end up suffering for Christ? No, that isn't what that means. Because you're going to continue to sin. Okay, as long as you're alive, you're going to be tempted to sin. But what this does mean, that the more skin you have in the game, the more you've suffered for Christ, the, the desire to sin is going to become less and less. Okay? You're going to be less likely, less inclined to sin the more that you are willing to separate and to suffer for Christ. And sometimes when we suffer, we think, well, I'm entitled now to a sin because, you know, I've suffered for Christ. You know, now I can have a little, little bit of, of sin, like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. No. Living for heaven means that you walk a different path than this world walks. And people have a hard time understanding that. 
because they live their lives to please themselves. They live their lives to please only other desires that they have. And now we are living our lives to please the Lord. And they don't understand that. When we are walking a different path than the world, you can expect to be ridiculed, mocked, receive some grief, to be made fun of, especially if you've had a dramatic lifestyle change. They're not going to understand, hey, you used to drink with us and go out and crowds around and do all these things and, 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 and cuss and listen to our dirty jokes and stuff, and now you don't do that stuff anymore. We don't understand. And you may get shunned or even shamed. Many times people that are trying to break a, an addiction such as alcohol or drugs, their old friends will try to tempt them. Hey, just, just have one drink. Come on, come on, for old time. Just, just one. You see, they don't understand that you have now separated yourself from that sinful lifestyle. So we have to prepare ourselves. When we don't participate in the sin around us, listen to this, those people that are still participating in that sin that still continue in that lifestyle, they don't like it. And they're going to speak ill of you. They don't like it because now all of a sudden they have come under conviction. And it's easier to ridicule or to mock you or to make fun of you than it is to deal with the conviction. They don't understand that the path that they're following leads to a dead end, but the path that we're following leads to heaven, okay? That's what it means to keep your eyes focused on heaven. Verse 7 tells us that if we're going to continue to live for heaven, we have to live with a sense of urgency. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. What does it mean to live with a sense of urgency? It means that there's not much time left. Okay? That's what that means. It's not much time left. We're approaching one of my favorite times of the year, March Madness. Any March Madness Hoops fans out there, a couple of you guys. Okay, so maybe the rest of you uh, just endure them. But right now, we are at the very last part of the regular season before the conference tournaments start and before the NCAA tournament starts, and there's teams that are on the bubble. They might make it in, they might not. And so now, it's way different than at the beginning of the season when there was a whole season in front of you. Now, every game matters. There's an urgency. They don't have games to waste. So now every possession matters. Every game matters. Every shot matters. Because it might make a difference in whether they make the NCAA tournament or whether they stay home. And so there's a sense of urgency. There's no one important game. And friends, I want to tell you, we need to be living, living with a great sense of urgency because Peter said the end of all things is near. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter said it. The time is short. It means we're living in the end times. 
Now, the end times, let me give you that definition. That is any time after Christ ascended back to heaven, we're living in what we call the Christian age, the end times. Now, there are the last days of the end times. Are we living in those? I can't tell you that. We could be. But Jesus taught his disciples what to look for and, and what the world would be like in the last days. And if you read through the entire chapter of Matthew 24, you're going to see what Jesus said to look for. Paul in 1 Timothy 3 tells us what the world will look like and how it will behave and how it will act during these days. So we need to be living today with a sense of urgency because, friends, we're on the shot clock and we don't have time to mess around. Things in this world are reaching a fevered pitch that has never before been seen before. And the time of testing very likely could be closing in on us. This world could be facing pandemonium like we've never seen before. That's why Peter wrote to encourage these believers. He's writing to encourage us that these things are going to happen, but don't lose heart. These things have to happen, then the end will come. That's what Jesus said. Don't lose heart. These things have to happen, then the end will come. You know, today people really don't like to hear much talk about the end times because well, frankly, it makes people uncomfortable. It makes them very, very uneasy. Well, I want to tell you something. We would be neglecting our duty as a church if we didn't warn you that these days were coming. This isn't Alan warning you. This is God's holy word. The scripture is warning you these days are coming. I would be neglectful as a pastor if I didn't warn you what the scripture said that these days are coming, friends, and we need to prepare ourselves. We need to be living with that sense of urgency. We're in the fourth quarter, so to speak, and there isn't time to become lazy or complacent. There isn't time to surrender or lay down. Because verse 5 tells us that we're going to have to give an accounting of ourselves because God is going to judge both the living and the dead. So we're living in the last part of human history, and our lives better reflect the urgency that we are living in the last part of human history, and we better have a sense of urgency. But while Peter is telling us that we may suffer for following Christ, he also reassures us, and he gives us hope because one day, all this suffering, all this pain, all this chaos that we're going through with world and world leaders and countries invading other countries and such will all be gone. It'll be done away with. But we have to live with a sense of preparedness now. How do we prepare? Well, I think we need to prepare spiritually. We need to make sure that we as an individual are living our lives as a pure and holy vessel for the Lord. That's your responsibility. To make sure that you are living your life as a pure, holy vessel for Jesus Christ. We need to prepare eternally. We need to make sure that we know where we're going to spend eternity. If you can't answer that 
question with 100% assurance, you need to settle that today, this morning, now. You need to make sure when all is said and done that you are going to spend eternity in heaven. We need to prepare physically and emotionally. We need to make sure that we're prepared physically and mentally and for what quite possibly be some, some rough days ahead for the church. We need to prepare ourselves now that you may be required to suffer for the cause of Christ. Start preparing yourself now so that when that day of testing comes, it doesn't catch you off guard and think, gee, I didn't know this was going to happen. Peter said it's going to happen. Get ready. Be prepared. Jesus told us it was going to happen. Get ready. Be prepared. We also need to prepare our family. Listen, this is serious. If you've been putting off talking to a loved one about Jesus Christ, you don't have time to delay. If you've been putting off talking to a friend or a coworker or a neighbor about their relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't have time to delay anymore. Okay? Do you understand? Time is running out. And you need to live with that sense of urgency that Peter said. That means that you need to be speaking up. Well, I don't know what to say. Find the words to say. What if they don't listen? You tell them anyway. Live your life with a sense of urgency. And then finally, Peter says, we must serve with love. Let's pick up verse 8. Above all else, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Do you realize that you can serve without loving? Do you know that? It's called serving out of obligation or guilt. Or maybe you've been forced to serve, but you can serve without love. Peter says that our serving needs to be done with love. Now, in most restaurants or fast food restaurants you go to or even convenience stores, you'll see one of these self-serve drink uh, machines, you know? And often you go up there, you take your cup, and what's it say? Push to serve, right? That means you have to take your cup. You have to push against that little lever to make it work. Many Christians, I believe, live their lives that way, that they have to be pushed to serve. That they have to be coerced or guilted into serving, pushed into serve. They're not serving with love. And let me tell you something. You can both suffer and serve at the same time. Remember who Peter's writing to. He's writing to suffering Christians. And he didn't say, hey, I understand you guys are going through a really tough time right now. So just take care of yourself. Don't worry about anybody else. Just take care of yourselves. I know you've had some really tough days. 
just, you know, take it easy, take care of yourself. No. He said, keep serving with love. But too often, Christians have to be pushed to serve, don't they? You know, we've never got up here one time and said, listen, whoa, whoa, whoa. Guys, quit volunteering to serve. We have so many children's church workers. We have so many youth workers. We have, in fact, Vacation Bible School, we've got people on a waiting list. Quit signing up to serve, okay? You're overwhelming us. Boy, wouldn't that be great if that happened sometime? Where we said, hey, we've got all we need. I don't think we'll ever get to that point, okay? Because sometimes we have to be pushed to serve. I love it when people come up and say, hey, do you have a place I can get involved? Do you have a place I can serve? Yeah, what do you do? What do you like to do? What does it mean to love each other deeply? Peter gives us a couple of ideas here. He says, offer hospitality. In fact, Jesus sent his disciples out to various towns and where they were either taken in by fellow believers or or strangers that, that loved them. And that was even more important in a time when there weren't a lot of hotels and inns and things like that. And so hospitality was expected of these early believers. It was common. I grew up in a home where my family offered a lot of hospitality. I can't tell you the number of times when my family invited somebody, total strangers, home from church. Hey, come eat with us tonight. We got a big roast in, in the oven at home. Come eat with us. Come share a meal with us. Missionaries, ministers coming for a revival or guest speakers or something often found hospitality in my home. So I learned as an example the hospitality Let me ask you a question. Do you offer hospitality without complaining, as Peter said? Do you love strangers, or do you find it easier just to ignore them? Now, strangers is one thing, but what about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you offer hospitality to them? Somebody just uh, went through a, a horrible medical deal. Do you say, hey, can, can I come bring you a meal? Or just show up and do that? Hey, I know you ha had a bad accident and you broke your leg. Can I mow your yard for you? Can, can I run an errand for you? Or, or just show up and do it. Do we offer hospitality like that with love? And I want to tell you, when you show hospitality, it's going to cost you. It's expensive. You may have to rearrange your schedule. You may have to miss something that you really were looking forward to. But when you show hospitality to others, you're really serving Jesus. Do you understand it? And Jesus said that himself. When you give somebody a cup of cold water, when you give them clothes, when you give them food, when you take them in, you're not just doing that for the least of me, Jesus said, but you're doing it for me. Because I asked, when did we do this? When you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. 
Most of us have a hard time doing it for our brothers and sisters, let alone the least of these, don't we? Peter says, offer hospitality without grumbling. Then he goes on to say, use your gifts to serve. Whatever gift you have, use it for the glory of God. Do you understand this, that every part of the body of Christ is important? There are no insignificant parts of the body of Christ. There are people that serve in this church that you'll never know who they are. You'll never know what they do, but you would miss it if they didn't do it. And they don't do it to be recognized. They don't do it for any kind of accolades. They do it because they want to serve the Lord. And by doing that, they're serving you. And you think, well, my gift is just a small little insignificant gift. Doesn't, doesn't amount to much. It's important. You know, I found out sometimes when I take something apart trying to fix it, or maybe I'm assembling something. And I end up when it's all done and I've got a little piece left. I'm like, what the heck was this thing for? Anybody been there? Like, well, probably not that big a deal. It's pretty small. Till you go to turn it on or try to use it, and then you realize, oh, this little piece was pretty important. This little piece here makes the whole thing operate. And without that piece, it doesn't function. That's the body of Christ. And Peter says, whatever gift you've got, use it for the glory of God. Even if you think it's a small, insignificant gift, use it for the glory of God. And friends, this is all the more important as we see the time drawing short, the day of the Lord getting closer. You see, we see history in terms of hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades. God sees history in terms of the events centered around his son, his first coming and his second coming. Those are the only two events in history that really matter to God. When his son came the first time and when he comes back. And ultimately, we're going to give an accounting of our life. But we better be living with a sense of urgency. Mountain climbers are sometimes deceived by what is called a false summit. Okay, so I've never climbed a mountain, but I've read about these experiences. They go through, you know, treacherous weather. They, they're short of breath, hazardous conditions, but they can see the peak right there. And they finally struggle to get to that peak, and they realize it's the false summit. The real peak that they're looking for is still maybe a mile away. So friends, today, it's so easy to fall for a false summit spiritually. I mean, we live in a world we don't know what we can believe, what's true, what's a lie. And so we struggle and we get sidetracked by that false summit. I want to tell you, this is truth. This is not a lie. And we have to be found when Jesus comes back standing on the truth and ready. I don't want to be one of those people that says, uh-oh, I didn't know you were coming. I want to be one of those people that says, what took you so long? I've been waiting a long time. I was ready for you to rescue me a long time ago. That's what 
Peter said to arm herself with that same attitude that Christ had, that same attitude of suffering.